Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. Hello, everyone. This is my absolute first group podcast, where I have more than one author with me on Zoom, where we're recording, and and we're going to discuss a topic, which is research, anything and everything to do with that. And we're all historical novelists or have written historical novels. And with me is Linda Cardillo, who is the author of Love That Moves the Sun, a novel of Michelangelo and Vittoria Colonna. And she is also the publisher of Bellastoria Press. And then I have Jacqueline Sheehan, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm not sure which of her books <laughs> to actually mention. So she can talk about them as well. She's a wonderful author and, and very glad to have her on. And last but not least, I have Michelle Cameron, whose n- novel Beyond the Ghetto Gates was recently published. And she is a, a marvelous author, and she tends to concentrate on Jewish history. And so she has a whole different level and type of research that she does for that, I think. So anyway, let's start with Michelle then. What, what are some of your the difficulties you have with research? Difficulties. I think getting my arms around as much as I need and not more than that, because it can be so incredibly overwhelming. And certainly Beyond the Ghetto Gates was based on Napoleon's campaign through Italy. And you can just get absolutely lost in the research and never come back out. And because I love it so much, it's even more of a danger. So I think the biggest difficulty may very well be knowing when to stop. Yeah, has any either of the other two of you had that experience with research, Linda? I would agree, and particularly because I was also I love that moves the sun took place in Renaissance Italy, and there was just such an extraordinary amount of information that one really can go down the rabbit hole, and it's hard to come back up. And Jacqueline, you're working in the 20th century where there's there's almost information overload for you. Do you are you finding that difficult or I'm finding this less difficult than I found writing about Sojourner Truth because who was an enslaved black woman in the uh, 1800s in upstate New York. And there were sections of her life that I found fascinating after she was no longer enslaved and moved to New York City on her own. A few years after that, she became a member of a cult, which is something that no one writes about. And I was just totally fascinated by it. But that had to, I had to take those 80 pages out of the book. But I'll have to say, I'm very glad I did the research about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and in, it's not just getting lost in research, I think. It's also knowing, it's also disciplining yourself to look for the things you actually really need, the stuff that really applies to the story you're telling, which is different from 
applying to the general topic. Mm-hmm. And Linda, that must have been hard for you too. Uh, can you talk a I, bit about Victoria Colonna and yeah, everything? Yeah, one, one, one section that I actually did have to take out as Jacqueline did was both her father and her husband and her son were condottieri, they were warriors. And, and Italy in the, in the 16th century was constantly at war with either France or Spain or the Pope. And there I found these wonderful um, eyewitness reports of battles. And there was one significant battle that her husband is fighting for the first time. And it was, I was so enthralled by this sort of minute by minute description of what was happening in the battle and, and the, the conflict between the leaders because they were the Spanish and the Italians fighting the Pope and the French. And, and there was all kinds of intrigue going on in the tents the night before and who wanted to send the cavalry first and who wanted to you know bombard them first. And I had all of that detail and I wrote this 40 page chapter that my <laughs> editor finally said, out. And I had to work really hard to distill what was important about that chapter, which was, it was Ferrante's first battle. It was his basically baptism into war. And I needed to, to capture that without describing the minute by minute lead up to and description of the battle, which I still found just really fascinating to get inside the Renaissance mind and the observations uh, from this battle. Yeah, it is frustrating when you stumble on something in your research that is just so interesting and you really it just it's outside of what you're trying to say and so you really have to put it yeah. aside and I always think oh maybe I'll go back to that and write something around that and I never do. <laughs> Yeah. No, I uh, mean, I I just want to agree with that. There was a portion in Beyond the Ghetto Gates where I was describing how the French Revolution had created this entire new calendar week day system where everything was based on 10. And for me, it was absolutely fascinating. I think one of the dangers is you fall in love with the research. I think, Linda, you had that experience you fall in love with the research and you think everybody's going to love it but, <laughs> but you're right Suzanne if it doesn't fit in the story you have to be ruthless about what you include yeah absolutely um and I'd love to have you guys talk about a little bit is what What's a surprising thing? What's the most surprising thing you discovered? I know you said that already, Jacqueline, with Sojourner Truth, but what are the, what is the specific thing that you discovered, have discovered in research for whatever books that, that really startled you? And how did you come upon it? That's the other thing, because I don't know about you, but my research, researching it tends to be a process of serendipity, where <laughs> I start looking for one thing, and then I kind of bump into something else I didn't know I actually needed. But so, yeah, Jacqueline, maybe you want to enlarge on. Well, uh, so I guess I will talk about the 1938 time period, which probably like all of us doing research, I really didn't know anything about that particular time period. And now I am totally lost in it in, in a good way because it is such an exciting time period in American history. Mm-hmm. But, but there is sort of a, 
a grandiosity about America's goodness that I had to strip away in order to be very honest and authentic and bring that honest and authentic sense of history forward. For example, the way that Jewish people, people of color, immigrants, our isolationist nature at that particular time, that it there was a kind of brutality at that time mm -hmm. that I think we would like to forget, that we would like to forget that we were ever that way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's all the greatest generation and everything. And wouldn't it be nice to go back to that time, as some people yeah. have said, which would be really going backwards in a lot of ways before women could have their own credit cards and things like that. But yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Is there a specific example? I want to say one more thing about something that I find difficult with that time period is that, so with my characters, as Michelle is saying, we are telling a story that is set in history. We're not a history book. We're telling a story that has all the characteristics of story and plot and character. And I have to be very careful not to give my characters knowledge of the future. <laughs> For example, in 1938, we did not know the mega storm that was coming out of Germany. We knew things were very bad. We did not have any idea of the Holocaust coming. So I can't, I cannot give my characters that knowledge. It's almost like you want to like slip them a note or something, you know, and tell them what's coming, but you can't. Unless you have, unless you're doing a time travel thing where there's a character from the future who comes back to the past. There are people who do that. I've never been tempted personally, but yeah, no, that's such a good point. And when we're doing historical fiction and researching and everything, how, for instance, hmm, let me articulate this better. In what ways does the research you do give you more than just the historical facts? You know, tells you something about how people thought or what was important to them and, and how do you tease that out of your research? Linda, do you? So I think for me, certainly... The fact that I was writing about a poet, so I had her words, and that was extremely helpful. And in, and in addition, I have Michelangelo's words in his poetry, which I think for me, that was one of the revelations is I really didn't know how substantive his poetry was. I really, I think of him as a painter and as a sculptor, but I hadn't really thought of him as a poet. And so there is a great deal of sort of revelation in both of their writings and the fact that they were writing for one another in many cases was very helpful to me in understanding how they thought. And, but I had, one of the things I had to be very careful about was not impose, and this is similar, I think, Jacqueline, to what you were saying was, I couldn't impose a sort of 21st century perception on an interpretation on their poetry, that I had to really understand the context in which they were writing. And, and in particular, the spiritual context, because a great deal of what my book is about is their spiritual relationship. And so under, I, I really needed to educate myself about what was happening 
with the the rise of the Protestant Reformation and how that was influencing Italy and how that was influencing their own thinking and how dangerous it was. And mm-hmm. so that, but it's, it was also dangerous for me to really want to Im- impose upon what I was reading, as, as I said, this sort of 21st century interpretation, and I couldn't, I had to be very careful not to do that. Yeah, Michelle, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that is the 21st century perceptions are definitely an issue. It's one that I frankly struggled with in creating the heroine of my novel because a lot of my beta readers were like, she lived during like the late 1700s where a woman would be very passive. And I had to give her a lot more agency than maybe she really normally would have had. But I also want to add, Suzanne, in terms of surprises in the research, if I can go back to that for just a quick moment, I'm researching the sequel right now to Beyond the Ghetto Gates. And I am continuing the story, both of my heroine who lives in Ancona, Italy, as well as this Jewish soldier who goes off with Napoleon to Egypt. And what shocked me, shocked me, was the surprise where I found, I figured Ancona would have been very quiet and peaceful at this time, and that all the the action was going to happen over in Egypt and and Israel. And in fact, it turned out that Ancona was under siege from the Turks and Russians at this period. So I'm like, wow, that's a whole new dimension that I'm going to have to uncover more about and write about. And that was a huge revelation to me. And my mind is going a mile a minute and I'm thinking of questions and then they're disappearing. Can I add in something? Because I just want to say one of the reasons that I really love historical fiction, and I don't write historical fiction all the time, but is that when I was a kid in school, I was such a horrible history student. I was terrible because it seemed like history was taught of list the wars and the presidents (laughs) and memorize those. There was no context. There was no social cultural anything that went along with it. But when I discovered in in high school also, when I discovered historical fiction, that like blew up everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the doorway into history for me, anyhow it was. If I, after reading about Napoleon and Josephine, if, if I wanted to find out more, then I would follow up in history. Or if I read Mitch, something by Michener, which was very revealing, then I could follow mm-hmm. up on that. So I just think it's such a fantastic doorway into history that incorporates a lot more than the dates of generals and presidents and so forth. Absolutely. I, I, uh, and it's one of the reasons I that attracted me to it, because all of those history books we had in school, to quote, Jane Austen were written by men. <laughs> and so there are a lot of gaps in what they focused on. And and I know there's a lot of a lot of historical novelists now are really foregrounding women's stories. But that creates the issue that Michelle mentioned and that's what I was going to say is 
at the same time as honoring the tone of the time and not making them sound like 21st century people and have those attitudes, especially when it comes to female characters, modern readers don't, we have to adjust them for the taste of modern readers Mm -hmm. in terms of making them a little bit more active than they might have been, having more decided opinions about things. And I'm fascinating. I'd love to know, Linda, from you, especially with Victoria Colonna, how did you accommodate that? Because I felt when I read your book that it was very true to the period. She was very much of her time. And yet you made her, you gave her a certain amount of agency. And I think that came from her class, that women of her class often were expected to have agency simply because the conditions of in Italy at the time where their husbands were often away for months, if not years, maybe coming back periodically for a short visit. But they were running estates, they were they were managing property, and they had to be making decisions because communication was, they could call their husbands up on a cell phone and say, can I do this? Mm-hmm. But I think that Vittoria Colonna, in some ways, was different from a lot, perhaps a lot of women of her generation, simply because of, of the family that she came from and the family and the woman who also raised her and mentored her. Her gr- grandmother was considered one of the learned women of the 15th century. And so there was this enormous respect for education in her family that was passed on to her mother and then to her Vittoria. And then when she was fostered by, by Costanza Davalos, Costanza herself came out of a, a Spanish tradition that was very similar. So she had, there was this, a thread that ran through several generations that distinguished Vittoria that may have, have you know, made her somewhat different from some of the other women in her milieu. But generally women of her class were highly educated and competent and and, and the high, the higher they were in class, the, the more agency they did have. And that whole class thing is really important and we can't, shouldn't forget it when we're looking back yeah. in history. And it can also make it frustrating because if you want to focus on someone who isn't of that class, mm-hmm. often they were illiterate, probably. Yeah. Very little information is out there. So suppose you're writing and you're finding a blank. You really want to, it's for a real character not a fictional character, because you can just make that stuff up, which I do all the time. But if you find a blank, how do you approach filling in that blank when you need to give that character uh, a story, a backstory, as it were? I can tell you what I did when I uh, was researching Sojourner Truth, because she was illiterate. But because she became such a public speaker later in life, after she was about 50, there were many newspaper accounts of her. So I, I own, and she didn't narrate a book, but there was still, that was her narrating going through a white woman and the white woman writing it. So it's, it's constantly reading between the lines. It's white male journalist reporting on this six foot tall black woman talking about women's rights and so forth. So I think you still have to use your imagination 
as I said, to read between the lines, women of a certain time. Yeah, when I wrote my previous historical novel, The Fruit of Her Hands, I was writing about my rabbi ancestor, Mayor of Rothenburg. But the interesting thing is that there were no records whatsoever about his wife. And yet his wife was my main character, which gave me a certain amount of freedom, frankly. It's Suzanne, you say, if it's a fictional character, you can make it up. But so much of um, what Jacqueline just said about reading behind the lines, one primary source that I had was a collection of all his letters, which spoke about he was responding to questions about Jewish observance, which came to him from all over Europe by medieval Jews. And there was a lot in there that I disagreed with. So I let his wife be the voice of my disagreeing with him, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the tools that you have available to you really vary depending on the period you're working in, obviously. For my 13th century Southern France trilogy, there's only a certain number of resources available and scholarly works and things like that, which is why I didn't even bother to try to make historical figures except as peripheral <laughs> as peripheral uh, actors. But you go through periods, I don't know about you, but when I'm, I'm working in the French Revolution era, there is so much stuff. There is no way you can ever get your arms around the whole thing. And so in the face of that kind of information, how, what's your approach to narrowing it, aside from just thinking, what does my character need to know? Because context is really important, too. You have to lay the scene, as it were. Lin-Manuel Miranda once spoke about this when he said he went to Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, and he asked him, there's so much information about Hamilton. How do I get my arms around it? And Sondheim's answer was, just use what makes the musical. <laughs> yeah. And so I've always remembered that. So it's like, just use what makes the novel. <laughs> I think, and you're right, there is so much out there that you could drown. Yeah. You could literally drown. But I think it's, you've got to, somebody used the word discipline. I think you have to ha use the discipline in order to be able to say, I, I need this, I don't need that. Okay, uh, yeah, this is, also fascinating and, and valuable. And now my next question shifts a little bit to what's your approach? How do you, how much research do you do before you start writing? What do you have to have under your belt? And then we'll move into how do you organize it and keep it all straight? Linda, do you want to start? Um, so I think I spent three years just doing research before I put a single I can't say no. I had a sort of opening paragraph in my head, but I really didn't start writing until I had devoured three years worth of information. And most of that was done at, in libraries. I didn't start to do research on site until I'd already actually written a lot of the book and then needed to fill things in. And that's when I went to Italy. But 
the the original research was and I and one of the things that I did depend on was the research librarians in my local library who were thrilled to be helping me <laughs> and who could get me really obscure scholarly articles from resources that I would not have been able to afford but and they would just print things out for me and I'd arrive on a Saturday morning and hand them a list and they were really extraordinarily helpful to and I just and as I think you mentioned earlier Suzanne sort of one thing would lead to another like that I wouldn't have expected to explore but I say oh this sounds maybe I should look into this and gets I would get another book or another article that led me down another path to so it wasn't very linear my research was spreading out in lots of different directions. And so so how did you corral it once you had it? What did you do? Very simply, I had lots of manila folders and I had and I would just start a st- sticking things in and each character had a folder and each location had a folder. But there was a folder for food and there was a folder for dress and there was a folder for transportation. And I found this wonderful site that Stanford University has where you can put in two different points and the time period and they can tell you how far long it takes to get there by boat, by walking, by horse, by cart. And so I would have little bits and pieces of information like that. I had a folder on the popes because I think there were six popes during this time period that I was writing about. And so I just, and literally it was just, it was paper folders that I used. Yeah. That would have driven me nuts. On my dining room table. <laughs> and, and if I was going to write a particular chapter, I says, oh yes, there's a meal in this chapter. Let me pull out the folder on food. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, you have much more patience for that. I, I just, I don't do well with paper personally. I know you, so I know you don't. I try not to use it whenever I can, but how about you, Jacqueline? I'm in the paper camp also. I do a very similar process and I I can keep track of things that way. I mean, I know that there are lots of uh, formats out there to do it on the computer, but I like to be able to reach over and get the folder that's like 1938 or 1938. But the other thing that happens for me is that once I zone in on a particular time period, It feels to me like every article, every issue of the New York Times, every place I look, oh, there's something about 1938. That's related to 1938. Mm -hmm. And I I kind of love that. I really love that. It's Mm -hmm. like I'm sifting information just from the universe, and it's all relating to 1938. Yeah. And then what's lovely when another serendipity thing is you're looking for something and or with me, because I do things a little differently, I research and then I write and then I research some more and then I write and then I don't do all my research to begin with. And what usually happens is I write something and I think I better see whether that's possible. And nine times out of 10, I find some research to support it. which is really bizarre, but there you go. And Michelle, are you in the paper camp as well? I am in the paper camp, but I also, I wish I had three years <laughs> to research the books. I usually stop, I usually call it my intensive research period for three months. Three months is enough time for me usually to get my arms around at least what's going on 
hopefully to find the story. But then I'm researching every single day because there are always those gaps and you have to go find that information. I'm, I don't have folders. I have a big binder and I divide it into similar categories as Linda. But I really feel if I didn't stop just researching after three months, I'm back down that rabbit hole. That's the way I approach it. Yeah. One, thing, one thing about my three years is I was writing other books at the time. Oh. So I, I was, this was going to be my big book that was very different from the contemporary books that I was writing. So I thought I, I wasn't researching every day, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I know you're going to ask about organization. One thing that I found with my last book and with this one coming up, that I have to do is that you can get blank calendars of years. And I put down, I literally put down what happened every, all, on all of the important day. And for me, because I write Jewish historical fiction, this is actually really important because they can't be doing certain things on Saturday. certain days. Yeah. So I need to use that as one of the ways of organizing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to make a stab at justifying the non-paper version because <laughs> I don't have folders and I don't have, I do keep pieces of paper every, every once in a while, but I will, if I can possibly do it, I will save things. But the way I, because I use Scrivener, mm -hmm. there's a whole research tab on there and you can import web pages and just, and images and all this kind of stuff that, that you can go back to and you can search for it. But the other thing related to your calendar is, have you ever used Eon Timeline? No. It's a really fabulous program, and it syncs with Scrivener, which is <laughs> really amazing if yeah. you have to put in the right metadata. But it's just a really flexible timeline program. And I haven't used it for my most recent book, but when I was doing something in the 20th century where there were several different layers of people who are doing stuff. It was a, there was one, it was a, took place in bra on Broadway. And so there were the dates when the shows happened, okay. the dates when things happened in the people's lives. And then, and you can, you color code them and, and sync them and they, so that you can see what's happening in the different levels at the same time. You just get a, a view of the whole thing, which, which was very useful for some kinds of, some kinds of, books. I'm definitely going to check that one out. I will also tell you, I have a number of students who swear by Scrivener, just mm -hmm. absolutely adore it. I, I just, it's been so many years that I've been squirreling away my stuff that it's hard to yeah. picture making the switch. If it works for you, there's absolutely. no reason to change it unless you suddenly get overwhelmed and think, I have to do something about all this paper. But for me, it's mainly because I don't have a good place to spread out in my house. Mm -hmm. So I can't really, I can't occupy great surfaces with swaths of paper <laughs> but but yeah so I'm any of you have a research topic that you want to explore or introduce while we're here together I I'm fascinated by those of you who have had the opportunity to travel I've only been able to do that really one one and a half times <laughs> because a lot of my travel happened before I was writing the book. So I'm calling on memory. 
But Linda, you said that you got to go and be in the place. And I'd love yeah. to hear that. That's a good that, was, I, that was really significant for me to actually, as I call it, walk in Vittoria's footsteps. She grew up on the island of Ischia in a castle that still exists. And had met a woman a few years before at one of my book events who I knew arranged travel to Italy for families and had a lot of contacts. And so I, I had an unexpected opportunity to be in Europe I was going to be in Germany for my mother-in-law's birthday. And, and I thought, oh, it really wouldn't be so difficult to fly from Munich mm. to Italy if I could get there for a couple of days. So I called this woman and I said, can you arrange a guide for me who speaks English as well as Italian? And she was able to do that sort of on 48 hours notice. And, and so I had an entire day with this woman and for Ischia, Vittoria Colonna is like, she is, she's the patron saint of Ischia. They just adore her. And so there's a great deal of information that was in this woman's head, as well as being able to walk. In, in, the castle is on this little small island that's connected by a causeway to the main island. And um, even just to take the boat, even though it was a hydrofoil, but to, it took me mm-hmm. 30 minutes to do a, a trip that would have taken all day for Vittoria. Just, but to pass the, to see what she saw and to be on the water and then to walk and climb up to the citadel and to feel just an experience physically because it was very different. You, you walk through a tunnel through the mountain, before, this volcanic mountain before you get out into the sunlight. So though that experience was really for me and, and I recognize I had certainly done some research before just on the internet. You can go to YouTube and you can do these sort of virtual virtual tours, which at least give you a sense of the, the, the geography and the light, et cetera. But to actually physically be there is something that I found uh, a real privilege that I, that I was able to do. And then a second trip I did to Rome and the Colonna family still lives in the Colonna Palace and you can... You can go to the Colonna Palace one day a week, one morning a week, and I timed my visit so I could get the tour. But the, I think for me, the, and particularly because a lot of my books, not only this one, are set in Italy and, and are a reflection of my Italian heritage, that the, I also look back to other trips that I took much mm-hmm. earlier in my life. My first trip to Italy was when I was a college student and I was able to visit my grandmother's village and be welcomed back as a, mm-hmm. a daughter from America. That those memories, I think, are equally important as, as you say, Michelle, that even before I knew I was going to write those books, right. to have and really held on to those experiences because they were so meaningful to me because they were my heritage. Here's something interesting though. Uh, just that the whole idea of traveling and being there and doing it with intention and going back to your own memories of places. I have traveled for Teresa's Vienna and Paris and places like that. And I have yet to write a book that (laughs) is based in London, but I lived there for 10 years 
But what was really interesting to me, or would be really interesting, I'd love to go back and see how much my memories were affected by what I, by the stories I was telling, mm. as opposed to yeah. really being so accurate to what it was like there. And it was certainly having the opportunity to go to southwestern France and to go climb up to all the Cathar castles and that sort of thing totally made a difference to how how I was able to situate my characters in a landscape because mm-hmm. yeah. it is a really distinct and and I don't know what the word is atmospheric landscape there mm-hmm. but I have not been to those places for a long time and so I am operating even though I went there I'm definitely operating on memory most of the time and uh, Jacqueline did you do any traveling for Sojourner Truth Well, research travel to New York State and into New York City. But the book, so I did write a time travel book. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book um, where a 21st century woman and her rascal of a nephew are magically taken back in time to 1844 Ireland. So it is the year before the worst of the potato famine. Mm -hmm. Of course, the local, they don't know is coming. But, and the the book is the, the woman, when they're both uh, taken back in time, they're taken to a different location. So she spends the book trying to find her nephew in, in that time period. So after I wrote the majority of the book, I, my sister and I traveled to Ireland and I made a map of where my characters had gone because they travel along the southern coast of Ireland, along Kinsale, the Barra Peninsula, over as far as Waterford. And I I did a little bit of what Linda did. I simply walked the same steps that the characters walked. And I'm so glad that I did because there was a sense of place that even though I'd been to Ireland other times, that I would not, I just would have missed so much Mm -hmm. about that particular part of Ireland, some of which is very raw in, in some ways. And it, for example, the, the village of Kinsale, very beautiful village, but I had no idea that it was so steep. <laughs> it's mm. near vertical, and which would have been a terrible thing to miss in the telling of this particular story. Yeah. Has traveling to places or even in your memory sometimes changed your vision of your characters or just reinforced it? I don't know that it has changed the vision of my characters. It helps me see through their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the magic isn't it? The, what yeah. you do in any writing, of course, is put yourself into a character and see what they see. And that's whether you're writing first person or third person, I think it just, you still have to be in, you still have to be believably in their heads, for sure. Oh, anything else? I, I feel like this is a huge topic and we probably just scratched the surface, but what's your favorite, if you've found a source, a resource that you've used, that you go back to time and again? Do you have a favorite, a place to look? Um, one, librarians. You mm-hmm. know, they are the source of all magic. They really are. 
and they're so helpful and they open doors that I, I won't think of. Mm-hmm. And historical centers, for example, a historic, little tiny historical centers in little towns sometimes just have gems of information and it will lead to, well, have you talked to so-and-so and would you like to come and meet this person? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really- I, yeah, I agree, Jacqueline. I, I have a series of books that are set on Chappaquiddick Island and my, the first book is in the late 30s, early 40s. And the Martha's Vineyard Historical Society is this little building and I had written ahead and made an appointment and the librarian there had boxes of photographs ready for me from that time period and bound copies of the newspapers. And I needed just, I was towards the end and I just needed little details. Like I, I like, I wanted to be authentic about the names of the shops in the ta- in Edgar Town. So that was this there in 1941? And there's a scene where there's a sort of bar brawl and and I said it in Edgartown, and I was asking this librarian, "Was is there a bar that was in existence at that time?" And he said, "There were no bars in Edgartown. It was dry. You can't set <laughs> you can't set the bar brawl in Edgartown." Oh gosh! <laughs> Which would have been somebody would have caught that. And and yeah. so, but what he did was he said, "You know what?" He said, "We have a series of oral histories. We recorded old timers talking about places." And he said. I know that there's something in there. There's a, there was a bar that one of these old timers and he went into his records and he found this oral history and he named the bar for me. And I, so, and, and the town where it was. And so I was able to very safely move the bar brawl from Edgartown to Oak Bluffs. <laughs> but that kind of, and it is serendipitium, but that assistance that, that these historical societies and mm-hmm. librarians provide for us is really priceless. For me, it's museums. Uh, uh, yeah. Say that. say that. Yeah. Especially just looking at the art can tell you so much. Just yeah. how they place people in portraits, what their priorities are. You see what they're wearing. Especially with portraiture, it was very, it was designed to reveal the class, the station, the you know, priorities of the people whose portraits they were. And especially when they're, when you can't see photographs, when it's before photographs, it's mm-hmm. just a great way to do it. And then, of course, the museums, like the rooms at the Metropolitan Museum, the 18th century rooms, <laughs> that really tells you, that tells you more than, and in Paris, have the Carnavalet Museum is, is, if you were writing anything that took place in Paris in the past, you have to go to the Carnivalet because mm-hmm. it has uh, it just has stuff you wouldn't believe. So I, I, I absolutely librarians. And I've been very fortunate because when I was do, doing the research for my dissertation, I had access to the state libraries and to academic libraries and things. And I've handled, I've handled handle manuscripts, <laughs> you know, things like that, which I know that a lot of people can't do, but so yeah, libraries are awesome. I have a library story and a few museum stories. Because I <laughs> sorry, I took it from you. <laughs> but, okay, that's fine. But my favorite library story was back when I was researching the book that turned into my verse novel, In the Shadow of the Glow. 
And this was all about Shakespeare. And I was working at Radcliffe College at the time before it became Radcliffe Institute. So I had access to Widener Library, Harvard Library. And I told the, the librarian, really what I want is to be able to access Philip Henslow's diary, which they had. And so she took me downstairs under the pavement because that's, it was like that were absolutely under the pavement to find this tiny little dark corner where it was located. I just, that was amazing. So yes, definitely libraries. In terms of museums, even museums where you don't think you're going to find things, I found Napoleonic exhibits in Toronto mm-hmm. um, and in Edinburgh. And I've also found, and this is something I talk about all the time, part of my part of Beyond the Ghetto Gates is based on the fact that it was the world center of Jewish marriage certificate making, Ketubot. Oh. And there's a very distinctive shape to them. And so I would go into these museums and I'd see the Judaica that they've got there. And then I'd say, oh, that ketubah? That one came from Ancona. Hmm. And I was always right, <laughs> simply because of the shape of it. But yeah, museums for me are, are huge. Yeah. Just being able to see even the, the, the guns and, and the swords and the ammunition and absolutely the portraits and all of that is fabulous. Yeah. I, I yeah. also have a museum story that a few years ago, the Met did on Michelangelo a huge exhibition yeah. for Michelangelo, including recreating the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in flat screen teeth, screens on the ceiling that was marvelous when you walk in. But I turned a corner and there was a Vittoria Colonna room as part of this exhibition, which I was not anticipating. And the spotlight, the highlight of this room was the book of poetry that she had prepared for him. And I had never seen even an image of it. I just knew that it had existed. And in my mind, it was like the size of the moles, little moleskin notebooks. That's what I thought when I was envisioning it. And the to see the actual book behind, of course, this gla- it was inside this glass box. And but it was huge. And they had you could read it. They had it open, and you it, you could see that the calligraphy. And for me, that moment was just, it was such an enlightening and extraordinary moment to actually see this book that, you know, which only museums can do that, provide that kind of, you know. Okay, last question I have to ask. Do you ever have anxiety that you have researched something and somehow it's going to be wrong or someone's going to come upon it and have you had those experiences and what do you do about it? I think it's a worry I have all the time when I'm doing research from a a different time period. It's a funny line. It's a funny thing to dance with because it's fiction. We're writing fiction. So partly we're making things up and we're making things up around true historical facts. So, you know, that 
there's there are times when those two things blur. And I think people who are historians, when they read historical fiction, they're very quick to point out, I don't believe it happened on that day. I think it happened <laughs> the day later, because that's just how they think. They're yeah. yeah, one of my frustrations is when the different sources have the same thing happening on different days. Oh, and I'm like, too. that's one. But yeah, I, I am still waiting. I, I talk about this all the time. I know there is a Napoleonic enthusiast out there who's going to tell me I got the battles all wrong. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to happen. Yeah. I, yeah, I have the same, that, the, that same anxiety. And I, also, I often, I don't know if you all get this when I'm doing, back in the day when I could do a lot of book reading, I would always get the question, how much, what's true and what's not true? What, what, and, and what the way I answer it now is I have internalized the research so much and blended it with the fiction that I don't know that I could tease apart anymore, just specifically what is factual and what I made up based on what I learned from the research. And, and, and I, uh, so that's how I fudge my answer. Yeah. And then I think that the distinction too is the difference between truth and fact. As long as you're, you've yeah. found a, a truth, you're true to the period, that you're true to the characters, you have to move the facts around sometimes. You have to change them. And that's what an author's note is for, <laughs> to say, <laughs> exactly. all right, I know this didn't happen then, but it didn't work for my story. So I, I fudged it a little bit. You know? But yeah, we've, I, I've kept you all long enough. This has been I've really enjoyed this and I just, I want to thank you all for coming and talking to me on what here is a dismal afternoon, but yeah, I will make sure that I have links to all of your various websites and books and whatnot in the show notes for this. And yeah, so thank you. And I hope we can have another discussion sometime as well. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. This has been lovely. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Great, thanks. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.